Uh, thank you to Cliff and the team for leading us in prayer and for praying for us and our time together. Now, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 30. It won't be on the screen, so I do trust that you have your Bibles with you. Uh, Pro- Proverbs chapter 30, and we'll be reading from verse 7 to verse 9. Here we see a, an example of one of Agar's prayers. Uh, Proverbs doesn't just record for us the wisdom of God given through Solomon, but the wisdom of God given through an individual even like Agar, uh, who calls God my God at the end of verse 9. And so we do well to listen uh, to God's wisdom through Agar this morning. This is God's word. Let's hear it. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Only so far in the reading of God's word. May he reform our lives to its truth. I've shared this story before, and so forgive me if I'm sharing it again, but Russell Conwell, in one of his books, tells the story of an Indian sultan by the name of Ali Hafed. Ali Hafed owned a large farm with many orchards, orchards and grain fields and gardens, and therefore Ali was a wealthy man, But more than that, he was a content man. One day, however, all of that changed. He entertained a guest, and this guest told him all about the diamonds that he could have and the wealth he could have if he owned a diamond mine and not a poor old farm. And as the story goes, Ali Afed went to bed that night a poor man, a poor man because now He had become discontent. Craving after more, therefore, uh, he sold all that he had. He sold his farm in search of these rare diamonds, in search of a diamond field. And so he traveled the world but never found one. And so finally, Ali became poor. He became broken. He became defeated. And as the story goes, he committed suicide. See, his story is a very sad story of a man who wanted more and lost it all. Now, why share that story with you? Because Ali's example offers a helpful contrast and a necessary contrast to that of Agar's example. Agar didn't want more. In fact, he prayed, God, don't give me more. When last did you pray, God, don't make me rich? See, Ali and Agar are necessary contrasts that help us to approach wealth. One approach is foolish and leads to ruin. The other approach is wise and leads to true riches. And dear friends, if we want to be wise when it comes to our wealth, then we need to listen to and learn from Agar's example, not Ali's. 
Agar wisely prays to God two petitions. Firstly, he prays, remove from me falsehood and lies and deceit. In other words, keep me from being spiritually deceived. Keep me from being led astray. And what are those falsehoods that would lead astray? What are those lies that would shipwreck him? Well, the second petition tells us, he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither prosperity or poverty. Rather, he says, give me what I need. The Hebrew actually says, give me my allotted portion of bread. Give me what is necessary and sufficient for me. See, Agar's prayer is telling us that there are two things that are able to spiritually deceive you and lead you astray. And those two things are prosperity on the one hand and poverty on the other. And may I suggest to you, we see this in our day, don't we? Some among us, perhaps, are prosperous and rich. They often think that they don't need God. They think they have everything they need, all the wealth, all the security they could ever possibly want. And so, they deny God. They even think to themselves, who is the Lord? I don't need Him. It's not surprising then that with all its wealth, many in the Western world have turned away from God. They've turned away from Him. Uh, Bridges says this, too often the more we receive from God, the less we receive, He receives from us. How true is that not? Yet others are poor. They often want because they do not have. They want riches. They, they want great possessions. They, they want affluence. They want prosperity. They want ease. And so they use God to get what they really want. That they see God as a means to an end. And isn't that what we see in the prosperity gospel? People accumulate to themselves these, these false teachers. They, they follow and provide for these charlatans. Why? Because they want what those pagans can offer. They want health. They want prosperity. They want wealth. And what is the result? Not only is, is God denied, but, but God is profaned. And see, here we see the danger that Agar prays against prosperity, which can lead us to deny God, or poverty, which can lead us to profane Him. And so the question for us this morning is this. How do we avoid these two dangers? How do we avoid God denying prosperity and God profaning poverty? I would suggest to you Agar's prayer is instructive for us because it reveals someone who has the right perspective to wealth. I may suggest to you the book of Proverbs offers us this right, wise, and godly perspective. So this morning I want us to consider three perspectives to wealth that we need to lay on top of one another as we try and make sense of, understand, use, and pursue wealth and finances. The first perspective is this. Wealth is sometimes good. Wealth is sometimes good. That might come to surprise to some. Uh, many Christians throughout the church's history thought of wealth in a very negative way. 
Many in the early church, in the monastic movement, denounced wealth. They, they thought that poverty was next to godliness. Yet when we study the book of Proverbs and the topic of wealth in Proverbs, we see that sometimes wealth is actually good, especially when you understand it, gain, pursue it, and use it rightly. Listen to Proverbs 10, 15. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor, however, is their ruin. See, in the first line, wealth is seen positively. It's seen to bring security and peace. In the second line, however, poverty is actually negative. It's, it's ruin. And realize poverty is often seen negatively in Proverbs because sometimes it's a result of sin, of laziness, of, of foolishness. You see that in Proverbs 6, 10, 11, and 13, verse 4. In contrast, however, wealth is often seen as good because it's a reward for wisdom and righteousness. Consider Proverbs 14, 24. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings, or fools brings folly. Or consider Proverbs 10.22, another example of, of wealth being seen as something which is good. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Or consider Ecclesiastes 5.19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. So why is wealth sometimes good? Because it's a blessing given by God. Proverbs 8, 18, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. That's what God is saying. That's what wisdom is saying. See, all wealth belongs to God, and therefore isn't something that is inherently evil or bad. It's something which is actually sometimes Good. See, Proverbs recognizes this, but it also recognizes that it's sometimes. Why do I add that word sometimes? Why do I say it's sometimes good? Well, because we often misuse God's gifts, don't we? Proverbs recognizes that wealth is good when it's gained rightly, yet so often we pursue it sinfully. We use it sinfully. We think of it sinfully. Uh, consider two verses, Proverbs 18, verse 10 and 11, quite similar to chapter 10, verse 15. Listen to what it says. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, same as 10, 15, and like a high wall in his imagination. Now, don't you find that interesting? In, in 10.15, wealth is positively described as a strong city, yet here in 18.11, it's actually used negatively as a strong city. Why? Because wealth, when one trusts in that, instead of God, it actually becomes as flimsy as your imagination. It provides an imaginary security. 
See, what these, these two proverbs teach us is that wealth can tempt us to trust in it and not in God, to, to find our security in what it gives and not God. Anthony Salvaggio, in his book on Proverbs, a Proverbs-driven book, a helpful book, helpfully points out that on the one hand, wealth is a poor source of happiness. Uh, listen to Proverbs 3, 13 to 14. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit than gold. In other words, true happiness isn't found in your wealth. No, it cannot be found in your wealth. It, it cannot satisfy you. As Ecclesiastes 5.10 reminds us, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. But notice, on the other hand, not only is, is uh, wealth a poor source of happiness, it's a, it's a rich source of temptation. Now, we considered this a few months ago in 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you recognize wealth is a poor source of happiness, and it's a rich source of temptation. Therefore, Proverbs 23, 4 to 5 gives this warning. Do not toil to acquire wealth. To be discerning, be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward the heavens. Or Proverbs 27 verse 24 says simply, riches do not last forever. Now it's not saying don't work hard. It's not saying work hard to make a good living and earn wealth to supply for your family. No, the warning here is given, the warning given is this. Don't be consumed by this desire for us. Don't be captured by, by covetousness. Why? Because wealth at the end of the day doesn't last. And a sinful love for it will only bring ruin and harm. And so then what we need to see then is that according to Proverbs, according to the Bible, wealth in and of itself isn't evil, it isn't bad, it is sometimes something that's good. But, but here's the problem, it's not wealth, the real problem is us. See, how often is it not true of us that we take something which is good and we elevate it as the greatest good? We take something that is perhaps neutral or even something evil and sinful and we sinfully elevate it as having more importance than God, as having more importance than others or, or more importance than what is true, right, and good. And realize this is the nature of all idolatry. Idolatry takes something good, bad, neutral, and it elevates it to the place of preeminence. Uh, to, to find out, and this is something that Tim Keller has done great work on, to find out where your idol is, ask yourself this question, 
if I only had blank, then I'd be happy. If I only had this or that, then my life will be A for away, then I will be content. And, and let's be honest, how often do we not put money in there? Just a little bit more, God. Just, just a little bit more for the end of the month, then, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content. See, if you put anything in that blank that is not God, you're an idolater. You're one who's worshiping the wrong God. You're one who's, who's relying upon the wrong God, who's trusting in the wrong God. When we see all that, when we see this, you cannot but help see it all around us. People all around us, perhaps even some here, have made money the love. The, the love of money, their functional idol. And so for good reason, Paul says in Colossians 3.5, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, the love of money, which is idolatry, he says. And so, dear friends, let us learn the lesson Wealth is good. It's a gift from God, but sometimes we turn God's gifts into an idol. And we see those gifts apart from God. This leads me to the second perspective for this morning. If wealth is sometimes good, then how do we find the balance between, that, between it being good and bad? Well, onto the first perspective, note that righteousness is always better. If we must firstly see that wealth is sometimes good, it is a necessity to understand that righteousness every day of the week is better. Uh, just consider a few proverbs on the value of righteousness over wealth. Proverbs 10 verse 2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers again from death. Proverbs 11.18, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. 11.28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And then finally, 15 verse 6, in the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. See, in all of these proverbs, it is righteousness that matters. You can have all the wealth in the whole world. If you do not have righteousness, you have nothing. You have no treasure, no riches. You have nothing that will last on the last day. See, whatever matters, righteousness matters above all. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, righteousness is always better. Now the obvious question becomes, what is righteousness? Well, you perhaps know the answer. It's, it's to mean, it means to live rightly before God. It means to live according to, to God's character, to walk in His ways, to desire and obey His will. And this righteousness matters when it comes to understanding and pursuing and managing and, and using our wealth. 
Proverbs points out a number of, of marks that distinguish the righteous when it comes to their wealth. Consider firstly, the righteous person, when it comes to his wealth, fears God. He fears God. Look at Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Or 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied, he will not be visited by harm. Or Proverbs 22, verse 4. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. See, the righteous person has his priorities set upon God. He's, he treasures God more than all the riches of the world. He, he values God above every other security and rest. He fears God more than fearing the loss of all his things. And, and see, part and parcel of this fear, the, the righteous man desires, therefore, to, to listen to God and obey God, especially when it comes to his finances. In fact, the righteous person knows that true riches is found in God's wisdom. Look at Proverbs 13, 18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. Or Proverbs 16, 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding, is to be chosen rather than silver. See, the righteous person fears God. And when it comes to their wealth, they seek to honor God. They recognize that they are stewards of God's wealth, and they are accountable to Him for how they use it. See, the righteous, when it comes to the finances, to the way they treat their money, they fear God in it. But secondly, the righteous person, when it comes to money, upholds justice. He upholds justice. Look at Proverbs 16, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Or 28, verse 6. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in all his ways. See, because the righteous person fears God, because he surrenders himself to the will of God and the use of his money will, yielding it to God, he walks with integrity. He walks with honesty. He, he upholds justice in his business practices, in the way he builds his wealth, in the way he manages his wealth. He, he upholds justice and fairness and equity. And why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just cook the books? Why wouldn't he just take advantage of others? Well, because he fears God and he knows he's serving God, not man. Proverbs 11 verse 1, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Or Proverbs 20 verse 10, Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And, and the idea is this. Deception and injustice in your business is utterly despised and hated by God. And, and therefore, it not just brings him dishonor, but brings you his disfavor. See, the righteous person understands, as Proverbs 21.3 says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord. 
But lastly, the righteous person, when it comes to his wealth, values hard work. He values hard work. 13 verse 4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Or Proverbs 20, or 14, 23, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. See, poverty is, is often a result of laziness. It's a result of being all talk and no work. And Proverbs teaches us that, that wealth is blessed by God when it is gained diligently, with persistence and hard work. I'd venture to say our world knows this but doesn't like it. And you can see it with, with all the many get-rich-quick schemes. And what the Proverbs is telling us is that the mark of the unrighteous, they want to get rich quick. They want as much as possible with as little work as possible. Proverbs 21.5 says this, The plan of the diligent leads surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Or Proverbs 28.20, A faithful man will abound with blessing, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. See, therefore, the righteous person understands that wealth is to be gained and attained and managed by hard work, diligence, faithfulness to God. And therefore, Proverbs actually endorses a, a get-rich-slowly scheme. Proverbs 13, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. See, at the end of the day, beloved, what matters is righteousness before God. Righteousness in how we think about wealth and righteousness in how we gain and work for wealth. Uh, remember what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. And so the question for us is this. Have we sought God's righteousness? In the way we think about wealth, the way we use it, the way we pursue it. Are we governed by the fear of God? Are we upholding justice? Are we seeking to be fair and equitable? Are we hard workers? See, that's what matters in God's eyes. That's what brings His blessing to our wealth and our work. See, wealth is good. If God has given it to you, praise Him for it. But never forget the fact that righteousness is always better. Wealth can last for a day, but righteousness lasts forever. And so take note of that second perspective. Thirdly, not only is wealth sometimes good, not only is righteousness always better, but there's another perspective we need to add, and that is this, generosity is best. Uh, generosity is best. Uh, to understand wealth appropriately, we need to be reminded that everything we have is a gift. Your wealth is a gift. Your righteousness, if you're a Christian, is a gift from God through Christ. Everything you have is a gift. John 3, 27, John the Baptist says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. James 1, 17, we're told, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 
And so Paul asked the right question. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. Everything you have, you have received. Every cent, every penny, every skill, every talent, every possession, every position, everything you have is a gift from God. And Proverbs understands this. Proverbs 22, verse 2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Now, I think if we understood that proverb, I think that would change the way we see our wealth. That would change the way we deal with our finances. That would change the way we plan. It would change everything of our wealth, the way we see it. See, our wealth is not our own. It belongs to God. It's all His. And so if all our wealth is God's, and if we are stewards of all that He has given us, then it means it's not given to us to hoard. It's not given to us to, to greedily cling on to. I realize God isn't glorified in greed. No, the opposite, actually. He, he's glorified in generosity. And Proverbs would give us two ways he's glorified. He's glorified when we give to his work. We're glorified in giving to the Lord. We're glorified, in other words, or he's glorified, in other words, when we give back to what he's doing. Uh, Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruit of all your produce. Then your barns will be, full, will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, now, to honor God is to acknowledge His importance and significance in your life. That's what it means to honor Him. And one of the ways you honor Him is to use your wealth for His glory. To, to give back to Him all that He has given to you. Uh, the reference to first fruits, as you know, refers to the sacrificial system. It's the first fruit of the sacrifice that was given to the Lord according to the law. And the idea is this, you give the first and the best of your wealth to God and His work. You, you don't give Him your scraps. You don't give Him as an afterthought. You don't give to Him something that costs you nothing. No, you give overabundantly. This giving is an act of sacrifice because it includes a cost. You're giving up something. It's an act of thanksgiving because He's given you everything you have. But it's also an act of faith because you entrust what you have into his hands. And now where does this giving go? Well, in the Old Testament, it went to the tabernacle, the temple, to supply the needs of the priests and the sacrificial system. Well, in the New Covenant, it's a little bit different, but a little bit the same. You, you give to the church, the, the body of Christ, to, to supply the needs of ministry and missions. But the point is this. If God has given everything to you, then we ought to give of ourselves for His honor, for the exaltation of His name and His purposes in this world. So we, give, we glorify God by giving to the Lord. But secondly, we glorify God by giving to the needy. Uh, this is probably a whole sermon by itself. Uh, this is a huge theme, but Proverbs calls upon us to be generous to those who are in need. And, and realize not all poverty in Proverbs is a result of wickedness and laziness. 
No, poverty is often a result of misfortune and oppression. And in those situations, God's people are called to be generous. Uh, Consider Proverbs 19, verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Or Proverbs 22, verse 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Or 14.21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. See, God blesses his people as they are generous to those in need. When they show compassion and care to the frail and the weak, the oppressed. But not just that, God warns us against this lack of generosity because God is the defender of the poor and the needy. Listen to Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him, honors his maker. Or Proverbs 22, 22 and 23. Do not rob the poor, but because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Or Proverbs 21:13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Do you see how much God values the poor? Do you see how much God values generosity? Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 7. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, those who are greedy will meet God's disfavor, but those who are generous will be showered with his blessing and his favor. Proverbs 28, 25 says this, A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. And realize that's one way we trust the Lord, by doing his will in providing for the weak, the needy, by being generous. I love this quote by F.B. Meyer. He says, He's the richest man in, in the esteem of the world who has gotten the most. But he's the richest man in the esteem of heaven who has given the most. And essentially what I hope you see is this. We honor God with our wealth when we are generous. Generously giving to the work of the Lord. Generous in giving to the need of the poor. Now, you might be wondering, why is this the best? Why is generosity the best? If, if wealth is sometimes good and righteousness is always better, what makes generosity the best? Well, when we are generous, beloved, we are reflecting the nature of our God. Our God who has been generous to us. Think about it. Think of how generous and good He's been to you. He has given you life and breath and everything. He's given you your skills, your talents, your abilities, your opportunities. He has provided repeatedly for your needs. There is no doubt about it. God has been good. He has been generous. He has lavished you with His grace. But the greatest display of God's generosity is without a doubt the giving of his son. 
consider how generous He's been to you. You have sinned and rebelled against God. You have not lived a life of righteousness. You have not been self-serving or self-giving, but self-serving and, and selfish. And therefore, we have all been wretched sinners before God, alienated, hostile in mind. Yet he gave his life in his son as a ransom for us. He purchased a people with his precious blood. He, he paid the penalty for our sin. He transferred his righteousness to our account. He has been good. I consider what Paul says 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Rich how? In Jesus you have wisdom. In Jesus you have righteousness. In Jesus you are being sanctified. In Jesus you have redemption. You have forgiveness for your sin, adoption into the family of God, being indwelt by the Spirit of God. God has been gracious to you. And, and realize, because He's been gracious and generous to you, when you are gracious, you reflect something of the glory of God. You reflect something of His grace. You reflect something of His generosity. Uh, Sam Storm put it this way, our giving actually is but a reflex of God's giving. And therefore, when we are generous, when we bless as we have been blessed, when we, when we do this, we agree that with Jesus who said, it is blessed to give rather than receive. And so realize that generosity is best because it reflects the nature of our God. So there are the three necessary perspectives when it comes to wealth. Wealth is sometimes good. Praise God if He's given you overabundance, but recognize righteousness is always better. And generosity that reflects Christ is best. And realize all three of these perspectives will help us actually to become content. They help us to see that, that wealth is good. God has given it to us. They help us to see that righteousness is better. And both of these are gifts from God that motivate our generosity. And so when we view it from this perspective, God really becomes our focus. Wealth is from Him. Righteousness is lived before Him. Generosity reflects Him. And so, therefore, God becomes our sufficiency. And realize that's what Agar's prayer is actually all about. It's a prayer that, that asks to be safe from poverty and prosperity, but it's really a prayer of contentment. It's a prayer to be content with what God has given. It's a prayer to be satisfied with our daily bread. It's a prayer that wants to rely upon God as our sufficiency. It's a prayer, as one commentator, old commentator said, that casts oneself on the divine love in readiness to take what love assigns. And dear friends, may that be true of us. May we cast ourselves on divine love as we think about, as we pursue, as we manage, as we use our wealth. Because ultimately, it's only He that gives it, only God that gives it, and we ought to use it for His glory.
May that be true of us as a church body. May that be true of me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your goodness to us. We want to thank you that not only have you given us life, breath, and everything, but you have provided for our many needs. You have given us wealth. You have given us careers. You have given us opportunities to earn money. You have given us an opportunity to provide for our families for many years. Dear Lord, indeed, you have been good. Yet save us from taking the good gifts that you give and making them the greatest gifts. Save us from elevating these things over you. But rather help us to use these things to serve you, to glorify you, to honor you. May that be true of each of us individually. May that be true of us as a church. We pray, dear Lord, that our sufficiency indeed would be in you that we would reflect the prayer of ego, that, that we would desire not to just have riches and poverty, but that we desire to have you. Knowing that you are our God, knowing that you have satisfied and paid for our sin at the cross. You've given us your Son. And so help us to be content in Him, to serve Him, all for your glory, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name.